Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, continuing on, we're going to be in 5 through 11 this morning, um, which is sometimes referred to by smart people as the Christ hymn, um, because they believe that this would have been um, a poem or a hymn that was recited or sung in the context of the church before we had this codified New Testament yet, and it was the apostles' teaching um, as a way to be reminded of what Christ has done and that Christ is Lord, that Christ is God. So it's called the Christ hymn, um, which is right off the bat something that it's kind of instructive to me because what it shows you in this text is that the scriptures are always engaging us at multiple levels. Um, there's, you know, this reading the scripture to just learn the story and to learn who Christ is. Uh, there's reading scripture to learn what he expects of us. But then there's also this idea that um, scripture is actually leading us to like exaltation and wor exaltation and worship and adoration. Um, so Paul, although it's really the Holy Spirit who's doing this through Paul, because Paul probably wasn't aware of all the ways that he was doing this. Um, <clears throat> but in this one passage alone, he's trying to address a very practical and pragmatic problem in the church, an issue in the church. He's trying to tell us the exact nature of Christ and what Christ has done for his, for his church. And he gets so caught up in trying to tell people that, that he just starts busting out in worship. Um, so when you read two, you can't really read Philippians chapter two, five through 11, without remembering what it is that Paul is starting to do in chapter two in the first place and what he, what he comes back to at the end of chapter two. Uh, it seems like the church in Philippi was having a little bit of problem um, agreeing, or they were tempted to to kind of uh, divide or, or to divide up into tribes, um, to put their preferences above the other preferences of people in the church. Now, if that kind of like infighting was going on, we'll say with your kids and your family or in the church or at work, I don't know about you, but the way that I'm probably most um, immediately thinking how I can address the problem is to kind of sit down with the two parties and be like, okay, um, what did you do? And what did you say? And now what did he say? What did she say? All right, you know, who hit who? Um, who called who a name? And that's usually what you hear for, like, from kids is, is now we do this at, at an adult level. It's the same thing. But, but you usually start hearing like, well, he did this, and he did this, and he did this. 
And Paul kind of just wants to cut through all that by essentially saying, yeah, okay, but what did Christ do? <laughs> and it's like, that to me is like the ultimate mic drop. What did Christ do? So I've kind of summarized this in a very probably unmemorable way, but I at least made it rhyme or whatever you call this. Um, meditation upon the incarnation so Christ's coming to this earth as man. Meditation upon the incarnation and the exaltation of Christ leads us to imitation and adoration that brings about reconciliation and continued cooperation. Woo! Take that in for just a little bit because it took me like, you know, a couple hours to come up with that. So enjoy it. <laughs> What Paul is doing is he's saying essentially like more than any pragmatic conflict resolution approach, the best thing that we can do for relational harmony and unity, really the best thing we can do for ourselves is to be more continually aware and meditating on what Christ has done for us. That's more the, the basic way um, to put it. So I want to start. Let's read back up to chapter 2 verse 1 so we get the sense of it and we'll go all the way through uh, verse 11 so um, somebody volunteer to read 1 through 4 Chris and then 5 through 11 Bethany alright thank you so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by the tomb, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, amen. I love that. So I just picture <clears throat> with maybe maybe my own kids who are in the back of the van hitting each other. Not this ever happens, but like it did yesterday. And they're doing the, the he, he did this, she did this. Um, and just you just picture, like, if this were Paul, and he's saying, uh, guys, please complete my joy by just having the same mind. And then 
10 seconds later into this lecture, now dad's turning over in the front seat to look at his kids. He's saying, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are we clear? (laughs) That's what I feel like Paul is saying here, which sounds kind of like out there for us to imagine it like this. But I wonder if you're opening that letter in the church in Philippi, and you're kind of like, oh, I wonder who, whose side he's going to take. I wonder if he's on Euodia's side or if he's on Syntyche's side. Like, he's going to set them straight. And by the end of it, you're just like, oh, Jesus. Like, I need you more than anything else. It has a way of kind of making those, those disagreements kind of fade into unimportance. And if you look specifically at, at verse 2, he's telling them that... Th- This is actually a matter of uh, joy for him. He longs for them to be in unity by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So they're supposed to have the same mind, they're supposed to have the same love, and they're supposed to be in full accord, you know, no disagreement, uh, and of this one mind. And in, in chapter two, verse 14, after he gets done with this worship service, Um, He's back to the the practical issue again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing in case you didn't get uh, the reason why. So if you think about how is it that people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds and and imagine Philippi being a a metropolis and, and being a bustling city and having, well, Lydia, you know, herself came from over in Asia. Asia Minor somewhere, uh, but the jailer, you know, a pretty ragtag group of Christians, probably not too unlike us as I scan the room, you know, it's like a guy who came from Guatemala on a golf cart, right? Like pretty much a golf cart, okay? Um, You've got uh, people who used to like, what, skate and play in rock bands and didn't want anything to do with the church for a certain season. A guy who was in the Navy and had no clue what Christ had done for him. Um, Jeff West, I mean, that's enough right there. (laughs) No, but I mean, you think about it. He's saying you're gonna have the same mind when you have a million different background experiences, things that are kind of uh, influencing the way that you're gonna think through a different uh, decision or a preference or something like that. How in the world could we possibly achieve this imperative to have the same mind? All right, so if you think about the, the Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul is essentially saying the only way, the only hope we have to have a uni- unity in the body and to have the same mind and to be able to do anything of eternal value with one another is if all of our minds are on the same thing, or that all of our minds are on the same mind, uh, and that mind is the mind of Christ, which Paul says right here in verse 5, have this mind, okay, don't have your own mind, whatever that is, have this mind among yourselves, and here's the coolest thing, he's treating them as if everyone reading this um, is a believer, because he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, So he's saying, not only do I want you to strive to have this mind, but you've actually been given this mind. You can do this because Christ, if Christ lives in you, then you have the power to be unified in this way. 
But I want you, what I want you to do first is I want you to just give some consideration to what this Christ, the Savior of yours, what great lengths he has gone to to be able to establish you as a people to this day. And that's how we're going we're gonna to approach the Christ hymn this morning. One more thing before we get into this. Um, I want to read a few passages from the New Testament, and I want you to tell me um, what are the what is the common thread between these five these five passages here. Matthew sixteen twenty four. Then Jesus told his disciples, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Ephesians five twenty five. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Colossians 3.3 For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you tell me, what, what do all those, what's the common theme thread throughout those verses that I just read? Live as Christ lived. Okay, live as Christ lived. What? That were more or less this. Supposedly imagine yourself him, I guess. Okay. So in, in, imitate, in imitation of Christ. Okay, so almost all of these are saying a denial of self or a death to self. Self. Anything else? We'll kind of go into It's like part of that living is the dying to self. And only by that yourself can you become like him. Because even in that, you're following him because he died. Yeah. Okay, so a death to self, um, you might summarize this by saying, live your life like Christ, a death to self that is grounded in or born out of the death of Christ. Because why would any non-believer, human being, humanist, what motivation would they have to to possibly like put away themselves like to deny themselves that just sounds crazy like that's the opposite of what you'd want to do you'd want to embrace yourself and live to be the greatest um and and leave the greatest legacy that you could possibly leave and the scriptures turn that on its head it's a it's a the ultimate paradox of the gospel that in order to truly live to find life we actually have to get out of the way. Old man has to die in order to see Christ exalted in our life. So let me draw this. I talked about the V-shaped life. And uh, Sammy, can you come up here? Told you I was going to you. <laughs> This is really what the Christ hymn is doing um, right here. And over here, we're going to put Adam. 
And Christ is often referred to in scriptures as, uh, or in Christianity, as the new Adam. Okay, we're going to compare and contrast a little bit here. All right, so let's go through the, here, you get the marker. Okay, let's go through the Christ hymn right now, 2, 5 through 11. And we're just going to go from top to bottom here. Okay, it says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So where did Jesus begin? His ministry. Pre-incarnation. Where was he? With God in the creation. With God. And so put, put at the top there on the left of that V, Sammy. God in heaven, or, or however you want to say that. Yeah. The first Adam and the second Adam. With God in heaven. Yeah, well, we're, right now we're doing the V. We'll, we'll do this, the Adam, new Adam here in a little bit. Okay. All right, so what uh, privileges did he possess in that state? All of them. <laughs> All of them. All right. So he could, like, if he wanted to, he could, well, let's say he could flood the world and start all over again. Uh, if he, I mean, there, there was nothing, no, nothing on him that, at least by his nature, that required that he would uh, suffer, at least in that place. We, we, we could say, well, he had to suffer in order to bring salvation to the world. But as God himself, he could sit there and reign as king in all comfort and everything. All right, so... Here we go. God in heaven. And it said he emptied himself. Or what does it say? Let me get it right. Um, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, um, but emptied himself by taking on the form of the servant. So what did he do next? Leave some room here. What does it mean there? He took on the form of a servant. What's it referring to specifically? It's like, yeah, all I'm looking for is he was God in heaven, the, the form of God. When I say form of God, it's not like he was like God. It means he was in very nature God. And he laid aside those privileges and he became a man. So you can put one of those there, became a man. So in other words, he limited himself to become mortal. Or the capabilities of mortal. Yes. Became a man. You might see my get a little lower here, but <laughs> he's going low. He's going very low. And that's a that whole idea of what does it mean to empty oneself? There, uh, there's a lot of ink spilled so that heresy would not be created to explain exactly what did it mean uh, for Christ to empty himself? Because we can't deny one thing we know about Christ is he was fully God and fully man. He did not cease to be fully God or uh, did not cease to be uh, fully man while he was here on the earth. What it basically means is that he took on, I know it says he emptied himself, but what he's emptied himself is of the, the privilege of, being, of exercising the privilege of being God. He actually put on humanity and entered into this place when he had all the privileges in heaven. And then it says... Being born in the likeness of men, so here he is now on the earth, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
By becoming obedient to the point, well, just say this right here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. All right, so uh, taking on the form of a servant. All right, so it'd be one thing if Christ came to this earth as a man and said, look, I was sent here from God to kick some butt. So get out of the way and let me fix things here on this earth. And he became that, you know, military Messiah that they were expecting, you know, and he brought all of his chariots and they just destroyed everyone. But instead, he didn't just become a man, but you can write, became a servant. In fact, there's really no difference in that word between a slave, a bond servant. Um, so what, what we can say about, what, what is true of a slave? They have a master. They have a master, okay. Well, I'm always coming up with answers I wasn't looking at. Sorry. You listen and do what the yeah. master says. Yes, but what is true of a slave in terms of their, their rights? None. Okay. No, no rights, right? Um, and in a sense, you could say, well, Jesus you know, did exercise some rights um, as God to be able to, to heal and to do the things he claimed to be. But in terms of uh, how the world perceived him, was Jesus ever like pulling out swords and, you know, just like destroying someone and being like, I'm God, you better sit down. Uh, he basically let the world do to them, do to him as the world pleased. He went willingly uh, to the cross. And not only did he become a servant, he became obedient, so the master, right? He was fully in submission to the will of the Father, became obedient to the point of death. All right, so now you can put death, so you have to get a little lower there. But we're not going to go all the way down just yet, because um, everybody dies, right? Um, and he could have died fighting valiantly for his cause. Um, he could have died of natural causes. But Paul wants to make a very specific point here. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, maybe that doesn't like ring as loudly as it would have to first century Jewish people. Uh, but what is significant about adding that even death on a cross? Okay, so two things both. Yeah, totally. Amen. One, he was completely innocent. So it's one thing for us to die a sacrificial death, but none of us, even if, our, even if the way we were killed, we could say, well, we didn't do anything wrong and we were killed. He could actually say, I did absolutely nothing wrong. So, yeah, it makes it even of greater, in fact, like infinitely greater magnitude. And Bethany said the reason why this would be so, so humiliating and kind of like a mic drop moment for the Philippian church is it, it said uh, he became a curse. Uh, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So not only was he willing to die, but his death itself was the most undignified death you could possibly have. Between two criminals and with the Jewish people themselves saying that they wanted to spare uh, Barabbas instead of sparing the Messiah, the Christ. So death on a cross. 
So you can put that right here. Death on a cross. All right, so now that we've got that established here, going from the highest of high, infinitely high, <laughs> relative to us, to the lowest of low, let's, let's just write down a few things about Adam, because I want to contrast. If we contrast, like, Adam, the actual story of Adam in the Bible, and we realize the old Adam is in us, we have become a new creation, but we still live in the flesh, and so we still have this battle with the old man. Let's, let's take Adam, for example. All right, Adam, um, what was true? So we said that uh, Jesus was in the very form of God, the very nature of God, the very essence of God, uh, and was in heaven. Um, what, what was Adam's beginning? Garden. Garden, and From what form was he? Yeah. Perfect creation. Okay, a perfect creation. He was created in God's image, so right, you know, uh, God's image in the garden. Now, the difference between this and Christ is that Adam had all this given to him, right? There was nothing that Adam did. Um, this, was, this was something God did completely. So Adam was given all this by God. So Christ says, I am going to take on the form of a servant and become obedient to death. Uh, what does Adam decide to do? He wants to become like God, right? So here's Adam giving, given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christ is becoming a servant, um, laying aside his privileges in heaven. And Adam, having everything he could possibly have, he's trying to go the opposite way up the V. <laughs> he's trying to go and become like God himself. And specifically, what are we, how did he do that? Like, we kind of jumped really far to get to that point. Uh, if you were new to a Sunday school class, you might be like, wait, wait, how did Adam try to be like God? Uh, he listens to the tempter, but he really didn't originate that idea. I think he more or less listened to the, well, the missus listened to the tempter, and, the, and she, he listened to the missus. And what was the, what was the uh, tempter saying? Well, you can't be like God. Yeah, like he, I think God might be, he might be holding, holding out on you. I think you really could know right from wrong. Um, did God really say? Did God really say that? Um, so the, the, the Adam, the old Adam, wanted to be like God. And not only did he want to be like God, but he actually put himself in the place or above God. Because God had his, his plan for him, which was the best thing. And, you know, you picture him actually reaching up for fruit. Here he is saying, no, I want to be... I want to be above God. I want to be above God himself. So Christ is God, takes on the likeness of man, empties himself. Adam is created in God's image, tries to exalt himself above God. Christ takes on the form of a servant of God, willingly, 
and Adam is called to be a servant of God, but completely rejects it. So he rejects being a servant of God in favor of trying to be superior to God. And then finally, um, Christ humbly submitted to God's word. He fulfilled God's will perfectly in, in perfect obedience. And Adam decided to reject God's word and to go his own way. Um, one more, actually. <laughs> Two more. Christ took on the curse, so he became a curse for us. What did Adam do? He brought, <laughs> he brought the curse. So Christ took the curse upon himself that Adam brought. Just think of the implications of this in terms of like how we are living uh, in relationship to one another. Um, Adam brings about the curse. Christ, who has everything in heaven, takes that curse upon himself. And what happened to Adam as a result of this? Cast out of the Garden of Eden, died. Um, worship with God, broken. Worship with God, so separated from God, condemned, disgraced. So here we go. Adam is trying this way to become greater than God. And in turn, he brings about a curse on the whole world. And he's actually made to die and to miss out on all the blessings and is banished from the garden. What happens instead with Christ after becoming obedient to even death on a cross? Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Adam tries to become like God and actually is condemned to die, banished from the presence of God. Christ becomes obedient, to, becomes a man, becomes obedient to even death on a cross. And what happens to him? Finish the V out here. Death on a cross, what happens next? Resurrection. Rises from the dead, so overcomes death. Overcomes sin too. All right, so sin and death defeated. What happens next? In the gospel story. All right, so he's the ascended Lord, right? He's exalted and is in heaven, right? Right here. So Christ in heaven. So ascended into heaven, right there. And then if we finish, finish out the story, what is... Sitting at the right hand of God. There you go, sitting at the right hand of God. And if we finish that V there... Um, what is the end of the story? What, what is going to be true for all eternity? 
one day. Verse 11. Yeah. Every, everyone, um, Adam and everyone who has followed in the sins of Adam, whether they are in Christ or whether they are acknowledging the fact that, yes, he is Lord and I have rejected him. So right here, every knee shall bow. You can write that. You know what's awesome about that statement is every knee includes Satan. We too will bow before Christ. It, yeah, it won't be a it won't be a worshipful no. bow. It'll still be, but it you know you win. But I don't want anything to do with you. Know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is what this is how Paul. If we come back to what we were talking about at the beginning. This is how Paul is trying to motivate the Philippian church to get along. <laughs> like a pretty uh, drastic way to go about it, right? But let's like bring it down to earth, like really close here. So when you wake up in the morning, I know, you know, all the fog has to clear. and You're thinking about which cereal, Cocoa Puffs or Lucky Charms that you want to eat. Um, but you know, how is it that you're kind of like... Planning, about, planning out your day, what are the things you're thinking about doing? Is it, is it foremost, um, how am I going to serve others today? Or is it, what do I need to do to be successful today? Maybe that's a leading question, but <laughs> what do you think? I got it, I got it, I got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how it is for me. Yeah, Jorge? I think I don't brush my teeth, so I don't... Uh... So you don't? <laughs> yeah. Um, but really, like, I know some of you are probably more servant-hearted than I am, hopefully, but you can get to the end of the day and you can realize I was consumed with me the entire day. Um, and so if you think about how many hours of the day that you give to yourself in terms of Um, Either I need to do this or I got to get this done. Um, The world revolves around me. Um, What is likely to happen if that's your focus um, to the way that you think of other people? Whether it's a cashier at the store or somebody in front of you in traffic or what are they to you? Ooh, that's a good one. Obstacle. Somebody said lower. Um, somebody I got to get past. An interruption. Um, I know for... Depends how much of a rush you're in. <laughs> yeah. Make it easier. Yeah. They're in my way. For those of us who have kids, you know, you, you think of those. In your, in your low moments, you think of them as interruptions, maybe? Or as, you know, why can't you just do what... I need you to do in order to have a, a peaceful day. Well, I'm not be, they can be, if they're getting bigger, they can be your helper. Yep. Yeah. Now, what about, let's, let's, let's take marriage, um, because that's a great place to apply this 
to. Uh, whenever there is marital conflict, um, where is your mind tempted to go first or most often? Be honest. How do I get what I want in this argument? All right. How do I get what I want? So if it's having an argument, what's the best outcome for me? Yep. Yeah. She doesn't realize what I'm doing for her. Oh, <laughs> Russ. <laughs> you don't know how much that resonates. It's like, yeah. And I'm not, I'm lamenting that. I'm not saying that as a good thing. Yeah, I know my mind sometimes goes to, like, does she not realize that I did this and this and this? Like, <laughs> a, a mom who's raising four kids and is, attached to one of them 24-7. Does she not realize all I'm doing for her? Come on. What's wrong with her? Um, yeah, what else? She has it so easy. Oh, yeah. He, she has it so easy. Or, now, you said she has it so easy. See, so you're already projecting on rusts <laughs> rather than thinking about what you... <laughs> but, yeah, that's... Yeah, like, man, my life is way harder than hers, his. Um, don't they don't they recognize or what if, what if it's a, a way that you've been um, or a disagreement like it could be a fairly neutral innocuous disagreement um, just maybe the way you're going to do something with your kids or the, the what you're going to have for dinner um, and you have a disagreement what are you thinking in your atom state tell you what I'm thinking Yes. Why can't he understand that I'm right, Jeff? <laughs> and and there's an assumption that comes that like I must be right. Uh, and it's kind of silly when you like step back a little bit and you think of it more uh, reasonably. But it's this idea. Um, I can tell you this from firsthand experience. Like, what, what would what would drive you to possibly think that that's a good idea you know like don't you know this is the better this is the better idea I'm right uh, and it could be something on which there really is no you know something fairly neutral and a lot of sadly this this is what we see um, in church conflict uh, which becomes very tragic and, and you know marriages too and things that that end up in divorce um, is this idea that either she wasn't living up to my expectation or he wasn't living up to my expectation. One of the ones that I like to, I guess, like rant on or harp on, um, Chris, this may be a little like uh, awkward for you since you're the music guy, but I can't tell you how many people have asked me, either asking about um, at when we were at Overland Hills or asking me about this church, one of the first questions they can think to ask is, well, what, kind of, what style of music do you guys have? Now, I don't know what is completely behind that question, but I've had enough extended conversations to hear what people are saying when they say what kind of style of music is, I hope it's mine. Like, if it's not mine, then I'd rather go somewhere where it's mine. And, uh, and I would have said the same thing. Like, that, that's kind of how I thought about things uh, prior to thinking about them a little a little harder, I guess a little more Christ-like. But you know, like if somebody says, and like I said, it's a rant, um, but if somebody says like, I used to say as a teenager, I can only worship God 
when there are drums and the same three chords being played over and over again. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have articulated just like that. What I realized now what I was doing and saying things like that was dismissing every, at the time, probably 60, 70, 80, and 90-year-old who had, who had come up in the church singing the traditional hymns of the past, past set to piano music, whose ears are actually throbbing because they cannot sit through a modern, modern, so to speak, uh, worship service. So when people ask me that question now, I like to say songs that people who are 10 can sing with people who are 90. <laughs> uh, again, this is a rant, but it's just an example of how, how subtle we can put our preferences, we can exalt our preferences to this other, this whole other level that takes us uh, above or exalts us above other people. And it's sort of what you grew up and got used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, thinking like when, when there's any decision to be made or any, anything that, that requires preference, thinking what do I want as opposed to thinking what does everyone around me uh, need or, or what do we need to be the most, uh, to, to live together in, in, in harmony. And so again, let's come back to what is Paul saying the solution is? So let's get up in the morning again. Let's try this again. We've already made the decision between Cocoa Puffs and Lucky Charms, and then we've brushed our teeth. Jorge's like, no, don't go there again. Now, meditate on Christ, okay? In heaven, had all the privileges, emptied himself, laid them aside, became a servant. What kind of questions might you be asking as you begin your day, if you've just spent, let's say, 10 minutes just meditating on the Christ hymn. I find you think it'll change? something like the word Berlin, which I use a lot. That helps me focus. Okay. Because when I say word Berlin, I realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm serving Christ, not myself. Yeah. So, and also, I realize that it's God's day, it's not mine. It's my day to be His servant. So, that little saying, Okay, so like right off the bat, it went from being Russ is going to do all these things today to God owns God owns the day and I'm going to participate. Yeah. How else do you think your questions or your thoughts about the day might change or your focus on the day might change after meditating on this reality? It's, what is God's purpose for me and what is he called me to do? And how do I rely on him to do it? You can sit down, Sam. Sorry. Kept you up here so long. <laughs> what is God's calling? And is that what you said? What is God's calling what and purpose? Because if I'm a servant, yeah. God's my master. What has he called me to do? And how do I, and just knowing what the word says, how do I rely on him to do it? Not yeah. My it's very different than like, where am I going to eat for lunch? <laughs> That's the one highlight of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very different. You're talking my language now. <laughs> you know, I find too is you got to be when things don't happen the way you thought they were going to happen. 
realizing that God's in control, you know, there's a reason for it. And that helps deflate the anger or something like that, you know. Even, you know, I used to be, I would testify to this, when I drove, I mean, you know, I would go on this way no matter what. And, and I would get angry if somebody, if I didn't get through the light or something like that. Now I look at it that, well, that way's blocked, but that way's open, so the Lord must want me to go that way. There must be a reason for it. And sometimes it's amazing, there really is a reason for it. Or the guy who cuts you off in traffic, he must have a pregnant wife in the car that he's driving to the hospital, right? That's what. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that one just to not be so vague with the answer before, but one of the first ones is like, who can I pray for today? How can I be a servant immediately with no restrictions? You know, I can do that anywhere at any time, no excuse. Yeah. How can I start serving right now? I at least thinking in my mind about them and praying to them while I drive to work. Yeah. What else? Let's say you woke up fuming from a disagreement the night before. Now here you are in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Yeah. 
Okay. Praise. No, I was, I was, I was going to say, Russ, man, you should see the looks that Pat's making behind you. I know. You notice I said this way. She's like, <laughs> but no, praise God because what you have just said is you're, you are living proof of the paradox that it's only by uh, Russ getting chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and chipped away and Christ becoming more and more exalted in your life that you guys have had a marriage where you can actually experience joy right. and harmony. Um, yeah, I think that's a beautiful testimony. And, and I think it's one that comes from, how old are you, Russ? 74. Well, 73. Coming from a 73-year-old is very inspiring and motivating for us young whippersnappers. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Chris. I was going to say earlier when you were talking about difficulties in marriage and you are talking about the way that Christ is and all of these different steps he took to prove what kind of servant he was. You hear about like these celebrity couples and stuff. It's like, why don't you separate irreconcilable differences? Yeah. And if you have two servants acting like Christ serving each other, that just doesn't exist, right? Yeah. I don't think it could possibly exist. Irreconcilable yeah and so this this whole story what Christ the links that Christ went to was to bring about reconciliation the ultimate reconciliation which was between us and God and so it makes sense that in imitation of his example with his mind it will promote reconciliation with spouse reconciliation with friend reconciliation with church member uh my father-in-law said something that was really wise that i didn't quite understand at the time but i think it was before we were about to get married and he said um i don't i still know exactly what he meant by but i i've taken my own meaning for sure and he said every day um there will be a uh, something that happens in your day that will require you to be reconciled to your wife and and i've kind of th thought about it like you know even if we didn't have some some spat or or disagreement just the 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 nature just the fact that we both kind of had to go our separate ways like you know go off to work she stayed home with the kids and here we are and we've had a million different experiences happening happening in our life um I've had a, I have had a hard day at work. She's had a hard day with the kids. And the, the uh, Christless marriage, the husband comes home ready. I know I'm, I'm being like very un-PC. The husband comes home. I know it's all patriarchal. Just, you know, <laughs> cast me aside. Um, but let's just say for the sake of example, the husband comes home and is ready to... You know, TV sitcom, put his feet up on the couch and something is not right in the house because mom has had a really excruciatingly difficult day taking care of the kids and trying to keep up all the other responsibilities. And husband immediately is ready to lash out without even, you know, thinking about it. Um, or wife is completely disgusted at the fact that husband is laying on the couch when she's got laundry to fold and um, dishes in the sink because she hasn't had time to get to them. Uh, but the Christ 
the Christ-centered marriage or the Christ-centered relationship recognizes this fact that we have been separated and there's a need for reconciliation. And so if the mind that is in us that is Christ goes to, okay, how would Christ um, look at my, in my case, how would Christ look at my wife in this situation? The thought is now, okay, Davey, lay down your life, get dirty, get underneath some of that laundry, start folding it, get the dish soap out, start scrubbing it, wash your wife's feet, not literally, maybe literally, um, but wash your wife's feet and let Christ be exalted. Because in that situation, if you both are in Christ, or, or you know, even if you're in a marriage where um, one is an unbeliever, and the unbeliever knows that you live a certain life because of Christ, who is getting the glory and who's getting the exaltation when I start folding the laundry or doing the dishes? Um, and I know some of us would think, like, hey, did you see what I did? You know, like, <laughs> did you notice I washed the dishes for you? That's what we want to steal the glory. Uh, but if we're doing it with the right mind, then what wife sees or what husband sees is like, oh, Christ is in you. Because only Christ would have motivated you to do that after a really long day. And so just like in this V here, by dying, he is exalted. By entering into our messes, he is exalted. And it's not that by us dying to self, then we are exalted and we get all the glory. We are exalted, but we're only exalted in so much as we are in Christ. And so we're just right there with Christ, getting to watch him perform his amazing works uh, in the home or in the church or whatever it may be. Um, we're almost to the end here. So um, I did want to share one illustration. I totally skipped over it and I was going to show a video. <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but I, I like this illustration. Um, what does it mean for Christ to empty himself, uh, which is so often debated? And this comes from Brian uh, Chapel, who's a kind of a, uh, well, he's a pastor, but he gives a lot of instruction on preaching. Uh, he wrote a book called Christ-Centered Preaching. And he says, uh, he relays the story of this African missionary and in this particular part of Africa, there is a chief who is recognized in the village as the strongest man. So everyone knows that whoever the strongest man is in the village, well, that's the chief. Or at least the chief is the strongest man in the village. As the chief, he also wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. One day, a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg and lay helpless at the bottom of the well. Okay, so put yourself in this position. You've fallen in the well, you've broken your leg, and you are helpless at the bottom. There's absolutely no way you can get out. To get down to the bottom, um, to get down to the bottom, someone would have to climb down using the alternating slits that go all the way down the deep well, and then climb back up. But because no one could carry the helpless man up like this, they had to go get the chief. No one else was able to get this person out of the well. When he saw the plight of the man, the chief laid aside his headdress. He took off his robe. He climbed all the way to the bottom, put the injured man on himself, and brought him to safety. He did what no other man could do. 
That's what Jesus has done for us. He came to rescue us, and he laid aside his heavenly glory like the chief did with his headdress in order to save us. Now, did the chief cease being the chief when he laid aside his headdress? Did anybody think he was no less the chief because of his headdress? No, of course not. Did Jesus cease being God when he came to rescue us? Of course not. And in fact, it's in the rescuing of us and the daily living that out that he receives glory upon glory upon glory. The more that we receive him as the rescuer for us, the more glory he receives for it. And so if you think about yourselves, right, just as a closing kind of motivation for you, I think we all kind of walk around um, with this headdress, so to speak, that tells everyone else, I'm important. Um, I, deserve the, the, I deserve to be shown recognition and importance. And I'm going to keep this on because I want everyone to know just how hard my life is or how important of a person I am. And we picture Jesus removing all of that in order to come down and enter our mess. I think that helps me anyway to think like, that's what I want to be for other people. Somebody who can set aside any notion that I'm more important than them, that my uh, schedule is more important, and just come down, enter into the mess, and to show them Jesus.